Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the reading of the Courier Journal for Saturday, February 18, 2023, which is brought to our Louisville listeners via Louisville Public Media. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Your reader for today is Melody Ryan. We'll begin with the WHAS local forecast. Kentuckiana will be full of sunshine into the weekend. A southwest flow will drive in normal to above normal temperatures. Sunday may be a little breezy, but some spots may strike 60 degrees. Savor the weekend sunshine. Rounds of rainfall are likely to move in as a low pressure spins in from our west next week. Warmer than normal conditions are likely. Today, high 49, back to average temperatures. Tonight, low 37, clouds from time to time. Sunday, high 57, low 43, breezy, sunny, and mild. Monday, high 54, low 41, breezy passing shower possible. Tuesday, high 56, low 47, light rain likely. Wednesday, high 67, low 58, a rainy, gloomy day. Thursday, high 69, low 31, temperatures well above normal. Abortion still largely illegal. High court, near total trigger ban to remain while suit considered by Morgan Watkins. Abortion will stay almost completely banned across Kentucky, at least for now, after the state Supreme Court ruled Thursday that the Commonwealth's near-total trigger ban on the procedure and its prohibition on abortion after about six weeks of pregnancy can remain in effect while a related lawsuit is considered. That means abortion remains illegal in the Commonwealth, with exceptions only for the life-threatening health risks. However, Justice's ruling left open the possibility that a court could nix the trigger law if the broader lawsuit against it, which two Louisville abortion providers filed last summer, succeeds. The Kentucky Supreme Court based Thursday's long-awaited decision largely on whether Planned Parenthood and EMW Women's Surgical Center in Louisville had legal standing to challenge the trigger ban and six-week abortion ban. The abortion providers are prohibited from offering abortions right now and argue that both bans violate their patients' rights under the Kentucky Constitution. However, the Supreme Court determined Planned Parenthood and EMW do not have third-party standing to assert the constitutional rights of their patients. We are acutely aware that abortion is perhaps the most polarizing and difficult issue we face as members of this court, this commonwealth, and this country, the court said in Thursday's majority opinion written by Justice Deborah Hembry Lambert. But we must honor separation of powers and act only when the Constitution permits. The court pointed out a patient still could directly challenge the constitutionality of these abortion bans. To be clear, this opinion does not in any way determine whether the Kentucky Constitution protects or does not protect the right to receive an abortion, as no appropriate party to raise that issue is before us, the decision said. 
The court decided to keep these two abortion bans in place after hearing arguments November 15 on whether it could reinstate a temporary injunction. Jefferson Circuit Judge Mitch Perry issued in July that said those restrictions could stay in place until the full case is decided. The Supreme Court ruled Planned Parenthood and EMW do have first-party standing to challenge the trigger law on their own behalf as abortion providers, but not to challenge the six-week ban. And it determined an injunction temporarily blocking the trigger law still wasn't merited based on relevant legal considerations. It's sending the broader lawsuit back to Jefferson Circuit Court, which then can weigh whether the trigger law is unconstitutional based on the abortion provider's first-party constitutional claims. Attorney General Daniel Cameron, a Republican running for governor, is defending the trigger and six weeks bans, which the GOP-led legislature has passed in 2019. He praised Thursday's ruling, saying in a statement, We are very pleased that Kentucky's high court has allowed these laws to remain in effect while the case proceeds in circuit court. This is a significant victory, and we will continue to stand up for the unborn by defending these laws. Letters from Planned Parenthood, Federation of America, the ACLU, and the ACLU of Kentucky issued a statement on the plaintiff's behalf that criticized the court's decision. Once again, the Kentucky Supreme Court failed to protect the health and safety of nearly a million people in the state by refusing to reinstate the lower court order blocking the law, they said in a statement. Even after Kentuckians overwhelmingly voted against an anti-abortion ballot measure, abortion remains banned in the state. We are extremely disappointed in today's decision, but we will never give up the fight to restore bodily autonomy and reproductive freedom in Kentucky. This fight is not over. What events led up to this court ruling? Kentucky's trigger law and six-week abortion ban became effective after Republican-appointed justices on the U.S. Supreme Court reversed the 1973 Roe v. Wade ruling last June and eliminated a nationwide right to abortion. Planned Parenthood and EMW quickly changed, challenged both bans in court. July's Jefferson Circuit Court ruling temporarily suspended those bans, but State Appeals Judge Larry Thompson nixed that injunction in early August. The issue was then kicked to the Supreme Court. The High Court did not hear the case until after the November election when Kentucky voters defeated the proposed Constitutional Amendment 2, which would have changed the state constitution to explicitly say it doesn't protect a right to abortion. That failed Constitutional Amendment could have doomed the lawsuit filed by Planned Parenthood and EMW, but voters' rejection of Amendment 2 ensured the case could continue. In Thursday's ruling, Lambert wrote that the Jefferson Circuit Courts abused its discretion by granting the abortion provider's motion for a temporary injunction against both abortion bans. No Gray Area Cash Payout Games Dominating Spending by Joe Sanka Two groups opposing each other on legislation involving the cash payout games proliferating in stores around Kentucky are on pace to shatter lobbying spending records in the 2023 season, according to reports filed with the Kentucky Legislative Ethics Commission. Called Legal Skill Games by supporters and Illegal Gray Machines by opponents, the video games resembling slot machines were nearly banned in the 2022 session of the Kentucky General Assembly, an expensive fight pitting the horse racing industry against Pesomatic, the largest maker of the games in Kentucky and other states.
Those two industries are once again the main players financing the fight over the games through the first month of this year's accession, with another bill to ban them expected to be filed by the deadline next week, as well as another bill supported by the skill game industry to formally regulate and tax the games. While most of the roughly $2.4 million spent by more than 600 groups to lobby state legislators in January went toward compensating registered lobbyists, the two leading groups in the Grace Machines fight collectively spent more than $320,000 on advertisements urging Kentuckians to contact their legislators on the issue. Gray Machine Battle Hits the Airwaves Leading all groups in legislative lobby spending through January was Kentuckians Against Illegal Gambling, a new coalition comprised of the horse racing and gaming industries, which reported spending $174,000 on TV and digital ads calling for legislators to ban the machines they claim are illegal. The TV ad of KAIG says gray machine gambling is a predator lurking that destroys families and puts kids at risk, potentially bringing violence, organized crime, money laundering, and robberies to your neighborhood. Ten horse racing industry groups, which effectively lobbied in 2021 to legalize historical horse racing machines, which also resemble casino slots, also collectively spent more than $80,000 on lobbying in January. Churchill Downs and Keeneland both placed in the top 30 in spending lobbying to ban gray games. Placing second in lobbying spending was the Kentucky Merchants and Amusement Coalition made up of retailers, bars, restaurants, and fraternal organizations who say they rely on the games to stay afloat and urge legislators to regulate and tax them. Kentucky MAC, which is funded by Pesomatic, reported spending $146,275 on radio and TV ads, as well as direct mail to operators' locations around the state. One ad of the coalition showed happy people playing the totally legal video games where you can win cash for your skills, saying they also create critical Kentucky jobs and allow restaurants, bars, and fraternal organizations to survive during tough times. Also among the top lobbying spenders was Pesomatic, which reported spending $20,500 on nine lobbyists, ranking it sixth among all companies and organizations. Kentucky MAC and KAIG are both on pace to break legislative lobby spending records, as each spent more in January than any organization spent lobbying in the first three months of the 2022 session. They also have spent more than what all but six groups spent in all of 2022. Though House Bill 256 was filed this week to regulate and tax skill games, Kentucky MAC has indicated it will support a different bill that is expected to be filed in the House next week. Representative Killian Timoney, Republican Lexington, is expected to once again carry a bill to ban the games. In the larger context of the issue, this lobby, lobbying spending mirrors similar fights in recent years between Pesomatic and competing gambling interests in other states. While the skill games maker recently joined the horse racing industry in becoming a prominent political donor to candidates and committees of the Republican supermajority in Kentucky. Chamber Trails Skill Game Groups and Spending Placing third in legislative lobbying spending was the Kentucky Chamber of Commerce, which is typically the perennial leader of such spending. The chamber spent $41,744 in January, nearly all of which went to its 15 registered lobbyists. Among the legislation, the bill 
the business advocacy group lobbied for was House Bill 1, cutting the individual income tax rate to 4% next year, which has already passed both chambers and has been sent to, been sent to Governor Andy Bashir for his signature or veto. Greater Louisville, Inc., the business chamber for the Louisville region, also placed seventh in lobbying spending with $25,000. The ACLU of Kentucky placed fourth by spending $29,432 to lobby for and against at least 50 bills in January advocating for criminal justice reforms and LGBTQ rights. Hospital doctor groups lobby on birthing centers prior authorization. The Kentucky Medical Association placed fifth among groups in January by spending $29,397 to lobby the legislature, with just over a third of that on compensation for its 11 lobbyists. The largest expense for the professional organization of Kentucky physicians was $11,000 for social media and streaming ads to support the passage of House Bill 134, which would create a prior authorization exemption program that automatically waives such requirements if a physician has regularly been approved for a specific procedure or service. The Kentucky Hospital Association also cracked the top 10, placing ninth by spending $19,744 on six lobbyists. The hospital advocacy group lobbied for House Bill 75 to allow hospitals to draw down federal funds at no cost to the state while opposing House Bill 129 to allow freestanding birthing centers which could compete with hospitals. Rounding out the top 10 legislative lobby spenders in January was tobacco giant Altria with $23,342 and Elevance Health, formerly known as Anthem, with $16,500. Civil Rights Trial of Hankison is Delayed by Andrew Wolfson. The trial of ex-Louisville police detective Brett Hankison on charges that he violated the civil rights of Breonna Taylor and four others the night when he, she was killed by another officer during a raid gone bad has been pushed back two additional months. Expected to last three weeks, the trial was to begin in August 21, but on a defense motion, U.S. District Judge Rebecca Grady Jennings Wednesday reset it for October 30th. Hankison appeared with new counsel Jack Bird of Nashville, Tennessee, and Ibrahim A. Farag of Louisville. The defense told Jennings the government had turned over more than one million pages of evidence and it couldn't process them by August. Bird asked Jennings to postpone it until next spring, but she said that was too far out. Hankison is charged with using excessive force by firing blindly into Taylor's apartment on March 13, 2020, through a sliding glass door and a window covered by curtains. He was acquitted on state charges of wanton endangerment, but charged federally last August. He is accused of violating the civil rights of Taylor, her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, along with three neighbors, including a pregnant woman and five-year-old child. Hankison was fired in 2020 when then-interim Louisville Metro Police Chief Robert Schroeder called the rounds he fired a shock to the conscience. Hankison testified in Jefferson Circuit Court he was trying to protect two fellow detectives at the apartment's front door, including Sergeant John Mattingly, who was shot in the leg by Walker, who said he thought the couple was being robbed. Mattingly said Detective Miles Cosgrove returned fire and a bullet from Cosgrove's gun hit Taylor, killing her. Also charged with federal civil and rights charges, 
were Sergeant Kyle Meany and Detective Joshua Jaynes and Kelly Goodlett for allegedly fabricating a warrant for the search of Taylor's apartment and other offenses. Goodlett pleaded guilty and resigned while Meany, Jaynes, and Hankison were fired. Goodlett is expected to testify for government against her former colleagues. No date has been set yet for their trial, but U.S. Senator Charles Senior Judge Charles R. Simpson III has set a pretrial conference for Tuesday. Five Memphis officers plead not guilty in Nichols' death by Adrian Sains. Five former Memphis, Tennessee police officers pleaded not guilty Friday to second-degree murder and other charges in the violent arrest and death of Tyre Nichols, with his mother saying afterward that none of them would look her in the eye in court. Tadrius Bean, Demetrius Haley, Desmond Mills Jr., Emmett Martin III, and Justin Smith made their first court appearances with their lawyers before a judge in Shelby County Criminal Court. The officers were fired after an internal police investigation into the January 7 arrest of Nichols, who died in a hospital three days later. His beating was caught on video. At a news conference after the hearing, Nichols's mother, Roe Vaughn Wells said the officers didn't have the courage to look her in the eye, but they're going to see me at every court date, every one, until we get justice for my son. I feel very numb right now, Wells said, and I'm waiting for this nightmare, basically, that I'm going through right now. I'm waiting for somebody to wake me up. I know that's not going to happen. The officers pleaded not guilty to second-degree murder, aggravated assault, aggravated kidnapping, official misconduct, and official oppression. They are all out on bond. Their next hearing was scheduled for May 1. The Nichols case is the hardest, is the latest to prompt nationwide protest and renew an intense public discussion about police brutality. Nichols, 29, was black. All five officers charged in his death also are black. Addressing the courtroom, Judge James Jones Jr. asked for everyone's continued patience and continued civility, stressing that this case can take some time. We understand that there may be some high emotions in this case, but we ask that you continue to be patient with us, Jones said. Everyone involved wants this case to be concluded as quickly as possible. But it's important for you all to understand that the state of Tennessee, as well as each one of these defendants, have an absolute right to a fair trial. Bean's attorney, John Keith Perry, spoke with reporters afterwards saying Bean was doing his job at that time and never touched Nichols. That assertion is contradicted by video footage. Blake Balin, the attorney for Mills, said the process must be based on the facts and the law and not the raw emotions that our country is experiencing. The public should be patient and cautious in judging his client, he said. Justice for Mr. Nichols will not be achieved at the expense of justice for Mr. Mills, Balin said. Nichols' mother and stepfather, Rodney Wells, were in court along with their lawyer, Ben Crump. Nichols was stopped by police for an alleged traffic violation and was pulled out of his car by officers who used profanity, with at least one brandishing a gun. An officer hit Nichols with a stun gun, but Nichols ran away toward his nearby home, according to video footage released by the city. Nichols' family, their lawyers, community leaders, and activists have called for changes within the Memphis Police Department on issues related to traffic stops, use of force, transparency, and other policies. Raising Teachers' Pay Has Bipartisan Support by Alia Wong Having met and fallen in love through their careers as special education teachers, Natalia Sandoval and her husband tried to make it work as long as they could. 
but after a while, they could no longer get by on two teachers' salaries while raising two sons in Hawaii, not to mention paying back the student loan debt they'd accumulated so they could train to work with students with disabilities. Shortly before the pandemic, Sandoval's husband, Joseph, traded in the career he loved for one that would keep their family afloat as a worker on the docks. It helps pay the bills and may even allow them to buy a house one day. But it's hardly as rewarding, says Sandoval, who knew from an early age growing up on Oahu that she wanted to be a teacher, specifically in special education. I stay because I really enjoy working with the kids, and I like supporting the families more than anything, because it's a very difficult world to navigate, Sandoval said. But veteran teachers like her and Joseph are often forced to decide whether the job is worth the sacrifices. We're just surviving, not thriving. Teacher pay is again in the news, with both Democratic President Joe Biden and Republican Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders vowing to raise educators' salaries and their addresses to the nation on February 7. Lawmakers in a number of states, both blue and red, have introduced or passed legislation boosting educators' salaries over the past year or so. A bill before the U.S. House would incentivize states to raise teacher pay, setting a minimum salary of $60,000. And Senator Bernie Sanders, the new chair of the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, will soon introduce similar legislation. Raising teacher pay has become an issue of rare bipartisan consensus, suggested Bernie Sanders, who said the issue will be a top priority. We're in the midst of a major crisis in education, and if we're going to have the best educational system in the world, which we should have, which we must have, we're going to have to very much change our attitude toward teachers, Sanders said. Fox host didn't believe election fraud claims. Defamation lawsuit seeks $1.6 billion from Network by Randall Chase. Hosts at Fox News had serious concerns about allegation of voter fraud in the 2020 presidential elections being made by guests who were allies of former President Donald Trump, according to court filings in a $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against the network. Sidney Powell is lying about having evidence for election fraud, Tucker Carlson told her producer about the attorney on November 16, 2020, according to an excerpt from an ex- exhibit that remains under seal. The internal communication was included in a redacted summary judgment brief filed Thursday by attorneys for Dominion Voting Systems. Carlson also referred to Powell in a text as an unguided missile and dangerous as hell. Fellow host Laura Ingram, meanwhile, told Carlson that Powell is a complete nut. No one will work with her. Ditto with Rudy, referring to former New York mayor and Trump supporter Rudy Giuliani. Sean Hannity, meanwhile, said that a deposition that the whole narrative that Sidney was pushing, I did not believe it for one second, according to Dominion's filing. Denver-based Dominion, which sells electronic voting software and hardware, is suing both Fox News and parent company Fox Corporation. Dominion said some Fox News employees deliberately amplified false claims that Dominion had changed votes in the 2020 election and that Fox provided a platform for guests to make false and defamatory statements. Attorneys for the cable news giant argued in a counterclaim unsealed Thursday that the lawsuit is an assault on the First Amendment. They said Dominion had advanced novel defamation theories and is seeking a staggering damage figure aimed at generating headlines, chilling protected speech, and enriching Dominion's private equity owners, Staple Street Capital Partners. 
Dominion brought this lawsuit to punish FNN for reporting on one of the biggest stories of the day, allegations by the sitting president of the United States and his surrogates that the 2020 election was affected by fraud. The counterclaim states, the very fact of those allegations was newsworthy. Fox attorneys also said in their own summary judgment brief that Carlson repeatedly questioned Powell's claims in his broadcast. When we kept pressing, she got angry and told us to stop contacting her, Carlson told viewers on November 19, 2020. Fox attorneys say Dominion's own public relations firm expressed skepticism in December 2020 as to whether the network's coverage was defamatory. They also point to an email from August 30, 2020, just days before the election in which Dominion's director of product strategy and security complained that the company's products were just riddled with bugs. In their counterclaim, Fox attorneys wrote that when voting technology companies denied the allegations being made by Trump and his surrogates, Fox News aired those denials, while some Fox News hosts offered protected opinion commentary about Trump's allegation. Fox's counterclaim is based on New York's anti-slap law. Such laws are aimed at protecting people trying to exercise their First Amendment rights from being intimidated by strategic lawsuits against public participation or slaps. According to Dominion, FNN had a duty not to truthfully report the president's allegations, but to suppress them or denounce them as false. Fox attorneys wrote, Dominion is fundamentally mistaken. Freedom of speech and freedom of the press would be illusory if the prevailing side in a public controversy could sue the press for giving a forum to the losing side. Fox attorneys warn that threatening the company with a $1.6 billion judgment will cause other media outlets to think twice about what they report. They also say documents produced in the lawsuit show that Dominion has not suffered any economic harm and do not indicate that it lost any customers as a result of Fox's election coverage. Superior Court Judge Eric Davis is scheduled to preside over a trial beginning in mid-April, but granting summary judgment to either side would obviate the need for a jury trial that could stretch over five weeks. In its 192-page brief, Dominion said the judge should rule in its favor because no reasonable juror could find in Fox's favor on each element of Dominion's defamation claim. Dominion attorneys also assert that no reasonable juror could find in favor of Fox's neutral reportage and fair report defenses. Recounts and audits conducted by election officials across the U.S. repeatedly confirmed the election's outcome, including specifically that Dominion's machines accurately counted votes. Dominion's filing states that evidence alone more than suffices for summary judgment on the falsity of the claims that Dominion rigged the election and its software-manipulated vote counts. Fox News attorneys argue the network's coverage and commentary are not defamatory. Even assuming for the sake of argument that Dominion could point to any statement that could be actionable defamation, this court should grant Fox News' summary judgment motion for the independent reason that Dominion lacks clear and convincing evidence that the relevant individuals at Fox News made or published any statement with actual malice, the attorneys wrote. Davis ruled last month that for the purposes of the defamation claims, he will consider Dominion to be a public figure. That means Dominion must prove by a preponderance of the evidence that the Fox defendants acted with actual malice or reckless disregard for the truth. Attorneys for Fox Corp, who joined in the brief filed by Fox News while also asserting the parent company is independently entitled to summary judgment because Dominion has not produced any evidence needed to hold it liable.
This concludes readings for the first section of the Courier-Journal for this Saturday, February 18, 2023. Stay tuned for the Metro section to follow immediately. Your reader has been Melody Ryan. Now to continue reading from the Courier-Journal for Saturday, February 18, 2023, starting with the Metro section. Your reader is Melody Ryan. We will start with the obituaries. We read only the name, age, and city. If you would like further information on any of the obituaries, please call us during the weekdays at 859-422-6390, and we will be glad to read the entire obituary for you. I will repeat that number at the end of the listings. Rex Ashball, 75, Shepherdsville. Kenneth Gerald Bright, 78, Bardstown. Roger A. Coulter, Sr., 74, Bardstown. Angela Suzanne Cozart, 65, Ramsey. Tate Ray Ellis, less than one, Owensboro. Versi Elson, 89, Miamisburg, Ohio. Lloyd Eastet, 62, Jeffersonville, Indiana. James Douglas Doug Ewing, 60, Springfield. Danny Martin Fox, Jr., 53, Cox Creek. Larry Allen Funk, 82, New Albany. Kent Bruce Graham, 68, New Albany. Phyllis Luana Hicks, 94, Brandenburg. Sally Huff Lee, 87, Stanford. Glenn Edward Lindsay, 52, Richmond. Jeremy Kenton Lucas, 42, Lutchfield. Dennis Lloyd Martin, 63, Louisville. Ryan Patrick Miller, 25, Jeffersonville. Susie Nelson, 64, Corridan. Mary Jean Newby, 70, Bedford. Jimmy Parker, 70, Louisville. Anthony Joseph Pasifume, Jr., 88, Louisville. Larry Payton, 75, Bardstown. Wilma Dean Eves Piper, 72, Eccles. Michael Anthony Mike Rader, 64, Perryville. Mary Lou Ray, 77, Shepherdsville. James C. Reynolds III, 70, Salem. Jerry D. Schaefer, Sr., 73, Louisville. Lillian Evan Steen, 92, Louisville. Thomas Dwayne Warfield, 37, Barberville. Louise Wright, 91, No City. If you would like further information about any of the listings today, call us during the weekdays at 859-422-6390, and we will be glad to read the entire item to you. Councilman Under Ethics Review, sponsored $40 million measure, then landed job by Billy Coben. Louisville Metro Council voted Thursday to ask the City's Ethics Commission to examine whether member Anthony Piagatini violated its code by initially sponsoring a measure to allot $40 million in COVID-19 relief funds to a health care coalition and then landing a consulting job with the group behind the project. Piagatini, Republican 19th District, said he also requested an opinion on his conduct from the Commission this week.
This resolution was aligned with what I have asked for from the Ethics Commission, he told the Courier-Journal. I am happy to and will comply with the process in every possible way. Thursday's emergency resolution came after the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting published a story Wednesday saying Picatinny started consulting for the Louisville Healthcare CEO Council, which pushed for the Healthcare Innovation Project, a day after Metro Council approved the $40 million allocation. He noted he had withdrawn his sponsorship and then abstained from the December vote to approve directing $40 million in American Rescue Plan funds to supporting a healthcare workforce innovation coalition. The resolution, sponsored by Councilwoman Cindy Fowler, Democrat 14th, and Council President Marcus Winkler, Democrat 17th, asks the Commission to review the situation as expeditiously as possible. Piagatini, who has worked in health care and real estate, including the last seven years as Senior Director of Provider Relations for WellCare of Kentucky, abstained from Thursday's vote. Tammy York Day, President of the Louisville Healthcare CEO Council, or CEOC, which several health care executives formed in 2017 to lobby for their industry, told the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting she did not view Picatinny having any conflict of interest because he does not consult on the ARP-funded project and his consulting work is focused on state government affairs. Can council members remove their peers from office? Council rules state members can remove their colleagues from office over misconduct, incapacity, or willful neglect in the performance of the official duties. At least five Metro Council members must swear under oath a colleague has engaged in that behavior to initiate removal proceedings, and a two-thirds majority of the 26-member Council must vote to oust a member. Any members removed from Council can appeal the decision in Jefferson Circuit Court. The last time a member was removed was in 2017 when Democrat Dan Johnson was accused of sexual harassment. What is the Louisville Healthcare Workforce Innovation Coalition? The three priorities of the Louisville Healthcare Workforce Innovation Coalition are to 1. Create a strategy that increases and diversifies the healthcare talent pipeline for jobs at all levels by mitigating barriers to training and employment. 2. Increase the region's capacity in workforce innovation for a stronger and more equitable health economy. And 3. Support the initiative via the development of a state-of-the-art tech and learning center in Russell Station that prioritizes hiring current Russell residents at all levels. How dirt can play a vital role in events. 1,250 tons will be hauled into Freedom Hall this week by Kirby Adams. The slippery turf at the State Farm Stadium for Super Bowl 57 proves the fact that surface matters. When you look at events like the Super Bowl, there are always discussions about the turf. Is it artificial or real? The surface is important for Lou City, which grows grass for its pitch and for us. It's just as vital, said Ian Cox, communication director for the Kentucky Exposition Center. Inside Freedom Hall, the surface needs to provide even footing for animal events, or it has to support tractors the size of people's living rooms. And for each of those events, a different type of dirt is required. So the surface really does matter for this weekend's 57th National Farm Machinery Show and most other events held inside Freedom Hall at the Kentucky Exposition Center, 937 Phillips Lane. But let's be honest. As spectators, we don't give the playing surface a lot of thought at events like the World Championship Horse Show, North American Championship Rodeo, BMX Bluegrass Nationals, or the Championship Tractor Pull. But the staff at the Kentucky Exposition Center thinks about dirt a lot. 
If you're headed to the 57th National Farm Machinery Show and Championship Tractor Pool at the Expo Center through Sunday, here are a few things to know about the surface at Freedom Hall. What types of dirt are used at Freedom Hall? Specific events need certain types of dirt, which are tied to safety and performance. A tractor pole requires a very stable, clay-based soil to ensure stability, Cox told the Courier-Journal. We cover the floor of Freedom Hall with a type of dirt called Crider soil. On the other hand, the rodeo, BMX, and horse shows need softer surfaces to protect the animals and riders. In some cases, like the horse show, we add a top dressing over the dirt of green shavings to catch the manure. How much dirt will be moved into Freedom Hall for the tractor pull? To cover the floor properly requires about 1,250 tons of dirt. To help you better visualize what that amount looks like, Cox said to think of the amount of crider soil we use for the tractor pull to be similar to the weight of eight and a half blue whales or about five Dreamliner airplanes or the weight of 320 elephants. How long does it take to load in all that dirt at Freedom Hall? The amount of dirt required to cover the floor in Freedom Hall takes five hours to load in and several more hours to compact for the tractor pull. When it's time to clean the place up for the next event, like a Bellarmine men's basketball game, that's an overnight job. We made a time-lapse video of transforming the space from the tractor pull to the basketball game, Cox said. The tractor pull ended at 11.30 p.m. and we had all the dirt out and the floor for the game in place for a 7 a.m. practice. What happens to the dirt when it's removed from Freedom Hall? If the dirt used for a horse show or rodeo, the expo center has to be certain the manure has been sifted out and hauled off for recycling. Even dirt used for the tractor pull is cleaned so that the bottle caps and other debris are not left in the mix. Once the dirt has been cleansed, so to speak, it is dirt after all, it is stored in sheds on the Kentucky Exposition Center property. Does the dirt have a history? It sure does. You know the saying, older than dirt? Well, a lot of the dirt used in Freedom Hall for various events is decades old. Some of the dirt, Cox said, has been recycled and reused for 50 years. Watch out for common romance scams online. FTC. At least 40% of people reported first contact via social media. By Amtrapal Kaur Sandu Longoria. Love hurts, especially when it's a scam. People often look to dating online, and while online dating is quite popular, it's important to be on the lookout for romance scams, which have become quite common. Nearly 70,000 people reported a romance scam in 2022 and reported losses of $1.3 billion, the Federal Trade Commission reported. Romance scams occur when a person takes on a fake online identity to gain a victim's trust in order to ultimately steal from the victim, according to the FBI. These scams are in every part of the country. In January, a 36-year-old Florida woman swindled a Holocaust survivor out of $2.8 million after they met in a dating app. Peaches Sturgo repeatedly lied to the 87-year-old man she was dating and bought a boat, condominium, home, and a gated community, numerous cars, and took expensive trips, according to the U.S. Attorney's Office. A California man who claimed to be a millionaire stole $1.5 million from 19 victims, many of whom he had a romantic relationship with. The Department of Justice said Z. Sean Stanley Campbell, 35, told his victims he was a successful real estate and cryptocurrency investor and was a Navy SEAL who served in Iraq and Afghanistan.
While online dating apps are popular with romance scammers, the FTC reports that scams can start with unexpected private messages in social media apps, too. At least 40% of people who lost money in a romance scam reported being contacted on social media, with 19% reporting they were approached on a website or app. What to watch out for? 1. Romance scammers will lie about not being able to meet in person because they're in the military, working internationally, have a job on an oil rig, or traveling, according to the FTC. 2. They will ask for money and tell you how to pay, whether it be through a wire, gift card, money transfer app, or cryptocurrency. So, if the love interest asks for money, it's probably a scam. 3. If they ask you to receive a package, it's a scam. 4. If they try to isolate you from friends and family or request inappropriate photos or financial information, they may try to extort you, the FBI said. 5. If they ask you to leave a dating service to communicate on social media, it's a red flag. The FBI recommends asking a lot of questions to make sure the person you are communicating with is legitimate, and to research their photo and profile using their image, name, or other details you may have. Where can I support Report a scam. Federal Trade Commission at https colon slash slash reportfraud.ftc.gov. FBI Internet Crime Complaint Center at https colon slash slash www.ic3.gov slash or your local police department. U.S. Military Done Recovering Chinese Balloon Debris by Tara Kopp and Lolita C. Baldor. The U.S. has finished efforts to recover the remnants of the large balloon that was shot down off the coast of South Carolina. An analysis of the debris so far reinforces conclusions that it was a Chinese spy balloon, U.S. officials said Friday. Officials said the U.S. believes that Navy, Coast Guard, and FBI personnel collected all of the balloon debris off the ocean floor, which included key equipment from the payload that could reveal what information it was able to monitor and collect. U.S. Northern Command said in a statement that the recovery operations ended Thursday and the final pieces are on their way to the FBI lab in Virginia for analysis. It said air and maritime restrictions off South Carolina have been lifted. The announcement capped three dramatic weeks that saw U.S. fighter jets shoot down four airborne objects, the large Chinese balloon on February 4, and three much smaller objects about a week later over Canada, Alaska, and Lake Huron. They are the first known peacetime shootdowns of unauthorized objects in U.S. airspace. The officials also said the search for the small airborne object that was shot down over Lake Huron has stopped, and nothing has been recovered. U.S. officials spoke on condition of anonymity to discuss military operations. The U.S. and Canada have also failed to recover any debris so far from the other two objects which were shot down over the Yukon and northern Alaska. While the military is confident the balloon shot down off South Carolina was a surveillance airship operated by China, the Biden administration has admitted that the three smaller objects were likely civilian-owned balloons that were targeted during the heightened response after U.S. homeland defense raiders were recalibrated to detect slower-moving airborne items. Due to their small size and the remote areas where they were shot down, officials acknowledge that recovering any debris is difficult and probably unlikely. Those last two searches, however, have not been formally called off. 
Much of the Chinese balloon fell into about 50 feet of water, and the Navy was able to collect remnants floating on the surface, and divers and unmanned naval vessels pulled up the rest from the bottom of the ocean. Northern Command said that all of the Navy and Coast Guard ships have left the area. On Thursday, President Joe Biden directed National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan to lead an interagency team to establish sharper rules to track, monitor, and potentially shoot down unknown aerial objects. Meanwhile, key questions about the Chinese balloon remain unanswered, including what, if any, intelligence it was able to collect as it flew over sensitive military sites in the United States, and whether it was able to transmit anything back to China. The U.S. tracked it for several days after it left China, said a U.S. official who spoke on condition of anonymity to discuss sensitive intelligence. It appears to have been blown off its initial trajectory, which was toward the U.S. territory of Guam, and ultimately flew over the continental U.S., the official said. Experts. 24 Vote Faces Foreign Cyber Threats. Decentralized Election System Called Vulnerable by Ayana Alexander. Top state election and cybersecurity officials on Thursday warned about threats posed by Russia and other foreign adversaries ahead of the 2024 elections, noting that America's decentralized system of thousands of local voting jurisdictions creates a particular vulnerability. Russia and Iran have meddled in previous elections, including attempts to tap into Internet-connected electronic voter databases. Distracted by war and protests, neither country appeared to disrupt last year's midterm elections, but security officials said they expect U.S. foes to be more active in the next presidential election season draws near. The first primaries are less than a year away. Jen Easterly, director of the Federal Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, referenced Russia's attack on Ukraine and the U.S.-led effort to supply weapons and other aid to the besieged country as a possible motivator. She said the agency was very concerned about potential retaliation from Russia of our critical infrastructure. She also mentioned China as a possible source of election interference, especially as the relationship between the two countries has deteriorated, mostly re- most recently over the suspected spy balloon that floated across the country before being shot down by a U.S. fighter jet. We've not seen anything here, but I'd like to end that with the word yet, said Easterly, speaking during the annual gathering of the National Association of Secretaries of State. Of particular concern is the decentralized nature of America's election system. There are some 10,000 local voting jurisdictions throughout the U.S., including counties and townships, according to the National Conference of State Legislatures. Not all of those have funding for new equipment, proper staffing, or updated training of election workers. Easterly said it was a priority to get money and expertise to what she termed target-rich, cyber-poor entities. Megan Wolf, administrator of the Wisconsin Elections Commission and president of the National Association of State Election Directors, said her state has about 1,850 local officials running elections, which makes it difficult to distribute, disperse federal money in a way that is effective over the long term. Wisconsin is a perennial swing state, where four of the past six presidential races have been decided by less than a percentage point, and election conspiracies have found fertile ground since the 2020 election. Stephen Spaulding, policy director for the U.S. Senate Committee on Rules and Administration, said the committee's chairwoman, Democratic Senator Amy Kuljupar, is trying to obtain more election funding after an attempt last year fizzled.
Congress allocated $75 million in election security grants to state, but that was far short of what many state and local officials had requested. More than $75 million from last year's omnibus is clearly needed, in our view, Spalding said. We have reportedly heard about how sustainable funding ensures our elections continue to run smoothly, facilitate predictability and planning, and we're striving to work on a bipartisan basis to get that done. To one, Chinese balloon found. Taiwan's defensive ministry says a Chinese weather balloon landed on one of its outlying islands amid U.S. accusations that such craft have been dispatched worldwide to spy on Washington and its allies. The ministry's statement on Thursday said the balloon carried equipment registered to a state-owned electronics company in the northern city of Taiyuan. The islet where it was found, Tungyin, is part of the Matsu Island group lying just off the coast of China's Fujian province. Taiwan maintained control of the islands after the sides split in 1949 amid civil war, and they are considered a first line of defense should China make good on its threats to bring Taiwan under control by force if necessary. Reached by phone, a publicity officer at the company identified in the report as Taiyan Wireless Radio First Factory LTD said it had provided electronics but had not built the balloon. The spokesperson, who gave only his surname, Lu, said Taiyuan was among a number of companies that provided equipment to the Chinese Meteorological Administration. The balloon was likely among those launched daily to monitor weather and was probably set off from the coastal city of Ximan with no fixed course, he said. Such balloons regularly fly over the Taiwan Strait but have only recently begun to draw attention, he said. Kosovo now 15, but problems endure, by Florent Bajrami and Lazar Simini. Europe's youngest country, Kosovo, on Friday launched festivities for the 15th anniversary of its independence from neighboring Serbia, with a military parade, wreath-laying ceremonies, and a special parliament session. But the celebrations come amid revived tension with Serbia despite years-long Western efforts to reconcile the former foes. Both want into the European Union and have been told they must first overcome their differences. Speaking in the capital, Pristiana, on Friday, Prime Minister Alban Kurti steered away from the violence of Kosovo's, Kosovo's begetting, describing his country, one of Europe's poorest, as a project of peace, a contributor to peace, and a guarantor of peace. Ethnic Albanian-dominated Kosovo unilaterally declared independence on February 17, 2008. That came nearly nine years after a 78-day NATO bombing campaign in 1999 ended Serbia's bloody crackdown on ethnic Albanian separatists. The International Court of Justice ruled in 2010 that the independence declaration did not violate international law. The United States and most Western powers are among the 117 countries that have recognized Kosovo's statehood, and about 200 international organizations have accepted Kosovo as a member, although not the United Nations. Serbia, which for centuries considered Kosovo the cradle of its civilization, still sees it as part of its territory and refuses to recognize its independence backed by Russia and China. That makes for uneasy relations. Underlying tension has flared recently over matters as seemingly trivial as vehicle license plate formats. 
or the arrest of an ethnic Serb police officer, triggering concerns among Western leaders who fear another Balkan conflict amid Russia's war in Ukraine. Kosovo's president, Jozeva Osimani, played to that concern on Friday, urging NATO and the EU to accept Kosovo and other Western Balkan countries the soonest possible as a preventative step toward political, military, and economic violation from Russia and its regional satellites. Osmani also said Pristiana's negotiations with Belgrade must lead to mutual recognition, adding that Kosovo's territorial integrity, constitutionality, legal order, and sovereign sovereignty are non-negotiable. EU Foreign Affairs Chief Joseph Borrell on Friday said Kurti and Serbian President Aleksandr Vivic would meet in Brussels on February 27. U.S. and EU envoys visited Pristiana in Belgrade in recent months with a new proposal for normalizing relations. Its details have not yet been made public. Until now, 12 years of EU-mediated talks produced 33 agreements, which have only been partially implemented or largely ignored. In Serbia, pro-Russian nationalist groups have demanded that Belgrade stop all normalization talks, but Vuvik said it would isolate Serbia's internationality and kill its EU prospects. Former President Hashim Takvi and four other wartime leaders from the Kosovo Liberation Army are in the detention center of a tribunal in The Hague, Netherlands. All have denied the charges. Power outage at JFK cancels, diverts flights. A power outage in a terminal of New York's John F. Kennedy Airport stretched into a second day Friday after forcing some flights to be canceled or diverted, including one that was turned around and sent back to New Zealand after nearly making it to the U.S. The airport operator said Thursday that Terminal 1, which handles some of the airport's international flights, would remain closed Friday due to electrical issues. The outage was caused by an electrical panel failure that led to a small fire, which was quickly extinguished authorities said. The Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, which runs New York's major airports, said it was working to accommodate affected flights at JFK's four other active terminals. Some planes were forced to return to their points of origin, and Air New Zealand flight was two-thirds of the way across the Pacific when it had to head back. The flight landed in Auckland after more than 16 hours in the air. Terminal 1 opened in the late 1990s. It is scheduled to be replaced by a new $9.5 billion terminal now under construction. Farm worker pleads not guilty to killing seven at California farms. A farm worker charged with killing seven people January 23rd in back-to-back shootings at two Northern California mushroom farms pleaded not guilty Thursday. Chun-Li Zhao, 66, is charged with seven counts of murder and one count of attempted murder. The judge last week issued a gag order prohibiting prosecuting and defense attorneys, as well as Zhao and the county's sheriff's office, from talking to reporters about the facts of the case or sharing opinions about what happened. Floodwaters forced West Virginia students to spend night at school. Floodwaters in West Virginia forced some high school students to hunker down for the night in an impromptu slumber party, complete with pizza, board games, and football in the gymnasium. Parents who were able to drive to the school were allowed to pick up their children, but some students of Lincoln County High School in the town of Hamlin were forced to stay put. Cots, blankets, pillows, and other supplies were donated by members of the community, stores, and churches, school officials said. Officials called off class Friday.
This concludes excerpts from the Courier-Journal for Saturday, February 18, 2023. Your reader has been Melody Ryan. Please stay tuned for continued programming on Radio I. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.